Uh, we're continuing our series uh, this morning, actually concluding our series this morning on the five solas of the Reformation. So if you're just kind of joining us, maybe trying to figure out what's going on, this word solas is a Latin word that means only or alone. And so that last song was actually very fitting for us to sing about God being glorified alone. Um, I, I think that it was probably not a coincidence, but probably with much prayer that went in picking some of these songs this morning that fit in wonderfully with our message. Now, these five alone statements, these sola statements, are what came out of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. There used to be one united church that became very corrupt and, and moved away from the Word of God. And this one united Catholic church, as it was known and, and still is in a lot of ways, um, was, was doing things that were very unbiblical, and a few very brave men uh, stood up for what the Word of God says. Now, these five statements were not statements you'll find in any of their writings explicitly. They kind of were summarized years later, actually just in the last couple hundred years, that these five statements were kind of summarized. But these were the five basic teachings that these men stood up for and said, this is what God teaches. And so the last few weeks, we've looked at sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone, how the Bible is our sole ultimate authority. We have other authorities in our lives. However, it is not our ultimate authority. There is only one true source of ultimate authority. Then we looked at sola fide, how we are saved by faith alone, and it's only through faith, not through any work that we can do. We looked at grace alone, or sola gratia, that is, that we don't deserve anything God has given us, but he has blessed us with with salvation. Last week we looked at solus Christus, how we are saved through Christ alone, and how we cannot add anything to it. And this morning we're going to look at uh, our last sola. It is soli deo gloria, that is, to the glory of God alone, to the glory of God of God alone. Now we all seek our own glory. Uh, And and if you don't believe me, I I wish my tablet was working. I had a fun video to share with you. I'm going to figure out a way to share it with you at some point, maybe on social media. Uh, We all like recognition and glory. And I've got a video from a basketball goal that we have set up in the youth room that I, I just want to make it very clear that when we put that basketball goal up there, um, we, we got it working and fixed in the last couple of weeks. I currently have the high score in this basketball game, 63 points in 30 seconds, and I dare any of you youth to try to beat my 63 points in 30 seconds. I'm disappointed that I can't show you the video of me scoring 63 points in 30 seconds. It actually breaks my heart that you all can't see how amazing my score is. You don't have a video of it, so I don't believe you at all. My score of 63 points in 30 seconds is the documented leading score in that basketball goal. I just, you can give a round of applause. It's okay. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. All right. We're we're fishing for it and got nothing, right? We all want the recognition, right? We all want the glory. We all want people to know it feels good to be accomplished, but it feels even better to be recognized. And so this morning, I want to talk about that glory that we all seek. I want to talk about how we all yearn for the attention that God alone deserves. 
You know, it may come as a surprise to some of you, I know, but on occasion, churches fight. Did you know that? Sometimes they get in disagreements and they don't get along with one another. You wouldn't know that here at our church because our church is perfectly unified in everything we've ever done. Um, and obviously, God has not struck me down with lightning, but that's not true. Uh, we understand churches have disagreements from time to time, and it, it's nothing new. It's not as if it's just 21st century churches that fight and quibble and argue. This is going on all the way back at the time of this Protestant Reformation, 500 plus years ago. And you may be interested to note what started the Reformation wasn't necessarily a list of five statements. That's what came out of it. It wasn't necessarily the the 95 thesis or points that we talked about a few weeks ago that Martin Luther nailed to a door, although that was a great catalyst. What really began a lot of these men thinking were, were just church fights were just arguments over things we may think are fairly petty. For instance, one of the major arguments the church had 500 plus years ago was over which direction the priest faced when he administered the Lord's Supper. When the the priest is, is giving the Lord's Supper, does he face the congregation? Or does he turn around and face the elements and whatever would be up on the, the platform? This is a major fight and a major argument. There were people who were adamant the priest must face the congregation so that the church knows that he's speaking to them. And there were others that said, no, the priest must face away from the congregation because his focus is not on the people, it's on God and his glory. And there were these these bitter arguments. Now, I know you guys are really concerned when we take the Lord's Supper next month, which direction I'm going to face. And some of you are going to make a comment and note, you're thinking right now in your head, does the pastor face towards us or away from us? And you're starting to form a coup right now to overthrow the other people who want me to face the other direction. You have to wait a couple of weeks to remember which direction I face. I'll have you know most of the reformers, almost all of them, desired that the priest face the people. And here's why they desire that, because the Lord's Supper was a way that communicated that God was intervening and interacting with the people. And so their thought and their idea was it is, it is counterproductive for the, feast, uh, for the priest to turn his back on the people because it's communicating that somehow God is not connecting with them. There were major fights and arguments over what we would consider a very petty, petty thing. Another thing they fought over, and and you may enjoy this one, uh, also having to do with the Lord's Supper, is they they argued and they fought over uh, whether the congregation could take the bread and the wine or only the bread and let the clergy take the wine. I know what you're thinking, right? Some clergy came up with this rule. Give the people the bread and we'll take care of the wine. Don't worry about it. We got you covered. Um, That's actually not necessarily how that came about, but there was this idea that somehow the people were unworthy of the blood of Christ. And so the early reformers fought and said, no, Jesus said the elements of the Lord's Supper are for his church and for his people. And for the clergy to, to withhold that from individuals somehow withholds God's revealed glory to the people. I think what all of these arguments remind us of is that at this time there was a new calling a new attention to detail of how the church worshipped God. It was important to them whether the purpose of the church was to connect the people with God or whether it was to, to keep the people isolated and just fed whatever the priest would tell them. There was renewed interest, a renewed fervor in worship. 
After Martin Luther had gone through some of his, um, what the church called heresies, when he started preaching from the Bible, the church came to him and and his archbishop said, um, I want you to no longer preach the word of God. You are no longer allowed to proclaim God's word from the pulpit. They banished him from preaching. And his response in the letter back was, I will gladly give up preaching if you will let me have control over what hymns and songs we sing on each Sunday morning. Why did he say that? Because he understood that how we worship and how we interact with God was an integral part in our relationship with him. He understood that God's glory was something to be protected and proclaimed. So this morning, I I want us to think about how we view the glory of God, what we believe about God and his glory, and how we proclaim God and his glory reveals what we believe about God himself. How we worship and how we live reveals our hearts and how we are attentive or not attentive to who God is. Our text this morning is Romans chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 33 through 36. You can follow along on the screen with me if you will. Romans 11 starting in verse 33 says this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. After 11 chapters in the book of Romans, Paul comes to a place where he's ready to talk about the glory of God. These first 11 chapters are are detailed Accounts of the grace and mercy and salvation of Jesus Christ. It begins in the book of Romans with this understanding of our, our deadness to our sins. And so Paul begins with this depressing chapter about our, uh, the, the church word is depravity. That is our, our entire worthlessness before God because of our sin. How there is nothing good that we can do. And even when we try to do good, we do wrong. And so he spends the first couple of chapters just proclaiming this message of our wickedness. And he sets all that up so that the following chapters he can proclaim that even though we are dead in our sins and trespasses, he saves us. God loves us and cares for us. While there's nothing we can do, God works and brings about salvation. He sent his son Jesus Christ so that we no longer have to live as dead individuals. And for 11 chapters, he is proclaiming the grace and mercy and salvation of Jesus Christ. And after building all that up, I believe this section in Romans 11 is not just a continuation of thought, but is the logical conclusion to those first 11 chapters. If you understand the grace and mercy of God, you will proclaim the glory of God. When you know the salvation which God offers you, you cannot help but reflect that in how you worship and praise Him. So just like we have the last few weeks, we're going to look at two aspects of soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The first is how we proclaim God's glory. What does it mean to the glory of God alone? And the second will be how we practice God's glory. How do we live that out in our everyday lives? 
How do we make that less of a church phrase and more of an active part of our growth in Christ? And so I think in this passage there are three ways that Paul proclaims God's glory that we can learn from. And so we're going to look at these three ways. If you have a copy of your digital bulletin, you'll see these three blanks on the digital bulletin. Um, if not, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, the first of these three ways is what I'm going to call the way of sarcasm. The way of sarcasm. You know, for someone who is sarcastic like myself, I love that God includes these sarcastic bits in Scripture. And no, I don't think it's sacrilegious to say that. As a matter of fact, if you read the book of Job, you hear some of these same type sarcastic questions. It gives me great joy to know that God sometimes looks down at us and goes, how hard-headed are you? <laughs> now, how, how stubborn are you? This is so easy to understand, and yet you're missing it. And look at these phrases that Paul writes in verses 34 and 35. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? These are two rhetorical questions that we know the answers to. The sarcastic nature of them is that the answers are so obvious you wouldn't miss them. Who of you in here, I will invite you to raise your hand, has, has known the mind of the Lord or has given God worthy advice? Does anyone care to share with me the advice that you've given the creator of the universe? Anybody in here have anything they want to share with God that he does not know? Or, or how about this? Who of you has given something to God that now God is indebted to you? In other words, you gave him a gift that that makes God go, oh, wow, I really need to take care of that person because of, of the way they, they took care of me. Anybody in here give God a gift so great that now he owes you something? These are rhetorical and sarcastic questions, and they leave us to go, uh, okay, I get it, right? It, it leads us to humility. It leads us to understand that God is above us, and we have nothing we can give to him. We begin this morning talking about how we seek out glory for ourselves. And we want to be the ones who, who give the advice. We want to be the ones who give the gift and get the recognition. It reminds me of a, a very wealthy and, and uh, uh, prosperous CEO of a company who was, was leaving a speaking engagement with his wife in the back of his limo. And on their way back, they stopped at a gas station. And the gas attendant that came out uh, was quickly recognized to be the former uh, boyfriend, high school boyfriend of this CEO's wife. So they made the connection really quick and they, they got their gas, they drove away and the CEO smirked to himself and he said, boy, I bet you're glad you married me. And she said, what, what do you mean? He said, just imagine if you'd have married him, someone else would be sitting in the back of this limo and you'd be married to a gas station attendant. To which she said, oh, aren't you glad you married me? He said, well, that's not the response I was expecting from you. And she said, if I'd have married him, he'd be the CEO in the back of this limo and you'd be pumping more gas, you know. <laughs> we all want the recognition and the glory, right? I'm responsible for the outcome. I'm the one who made the decision. I'm the one who put things into place. Understanding the glory of God alone is understanding that we do not have that ability. We're going to spend some time later uh, during our announcement time uh, praying in, in light of our current elections. We're going to pray for our country and our nation, uh, our, our prospective president-elect. We're going to spend some time praying over all of those things towards the close of our, our message time. But, but can I tell you for just a second, this is a great illustration of how God is in control and you are not. 
I, I hope that you went and voted Tuesday, or, or if you did early voting, I hope that you, you uh, practiced your right and your responsibility to vote. And if you did, I hope that you understand that it was still out of your control. You don't get to pick the next president of the United States. Oh, you, you have a say in the, the, the process. God has blessed us with a nation where we can go and enact that right. But can I tell you right now, it does not matter who you voted for, who you didn't vote for, or how many votes you think someone should have gotten. God is in control of who sits in the Oval Office. And so this morning, we have to ask ourselves, can we look to God and say, why would you do that? How would you do that? Let me give you some advice on how you should do things. No. The first way to understand God's glory is to understand he's above us. He knows more than we know. He's able to do more than we can do, and it's to humbly fall down. We have to let our egos be set aside. We have to stop seeking our own glory and our own accomplishments. God's intention here is to remind us that he is God and we are not. The way of sarcasm humbles us. But the second way that we read here is Paul shows us the way of confession. The way of confession. In verse 36, Paul confesses to God that he alone is worthy of glory in all things. Look at the first half of verse 36 as we look at the way of confession. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Think about this phrase for just a moment. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him. Everything came from Christ. He is the one who created it all. There is nothing that exists in this world that God did not bring about. Not a single thing. Everything comes from God. He is worthy of worship as a creator. Through him. That is, God sustains all things. He didn't just create it and leave it. God continues to work through his creation. There is not an action that takes place that God is unaware of. There's nothing that happens that God is surprised by. He is the one in control of all things. And even when he allows others, even when he allows evil to persist, when he allows others to make decisions, it is not out of God's control. He is not only able, but he is active to work his will through him are all things and to him are all things that is for his glory and for his purposes there is nothing that exists in this world that was not created for the purpose of reflecting on the glory of God to him everything was made and it's not just some things or most things but all things in all areas of life in all aspects of how you live and how you carry yourself all things were created by God sustained and in his control and made for his glory and his glory alone sometimes a problem is is not that we think too highly of ourselves it's not that we think too low of ourselves it's that we just don't think about God at all it's not even that we're we're sitting on our throne saying look how great we are it's just we forget who is great. And so God becomes the assumed object in the background and eventually becomes the forgotten object altogether. Think about when you come home at the end of your day, and, and we're all, I don't know if guilty is the right word of this, but we, we all do this. We come home, and, and how was your day today? Let me tell you all the things that have happened, never once mentioning God's providence in any of those things. By the way, I'm not trying to transform your conversations to be at home and, and say nothing but, and God will this and God will that. Just share your day. 
But we don't even think about how God put us in places and worked in our lives. Or when you turn on the nightly news, right, you scroll through and you hear all of these events happening. Maybe it's disasters. Maybe it's a, a feel-good story. Maybe, maybe it's something political. And we look and we, we say, look at what the world is doing. And we forget and we neglect to give God glory. God, you're in control of all of this. Certainly in political events, we assume God is in the background, but we never actively acknowledge that God is working in all things for the good and also for the discipline. God is the one in control of everything. We assume he's in the background, but do we recognize him? The problem with assuming the background God is that ultimately our assumptions become less and less and he's just forgotten and left out altogether. God is always involved. Sometimes he works in large, miraculous ways that, that shake us and we see them brightly. And, and other times he works quietly in a whisper behind the scenes where we don't necessarily even think about his activity. But he is always, always working. You think about how your finances work. I think most of you have have raised young kids and, and realized there comes a point in time where, where you have to teach your children about money. And I can remember a few times talking to each of our kids when they were younger. Now, I'm Josiah, not quite yet, but I'm sure it will come that way, that, that they wanted something and they wanted to buy it. And you look at them and you say, that's just too much money. We, we don't, I don't have the money for that right now. We're just not going to purchase that. And you're trying to explain to them. And, and the, inevitably, we'll look at you and go, but you have that green card in your wallet. If you put the green card in that chip reader, then you can take whatever you want from the store. It's like magic, right? You plug the card in, you swipe the card, you punch a code, and you can have whatever you want. You have to start to teach them, honey, listen, that little card in my wallet is just a symbol of what's behind it. Right? There is, there's money in an account somewhere that is sitting, and, and every time I use that card, they take that money away, right? There, there's more behind it than that plastic card. Same with your paper money, right? It, it's, it's really just a symbol of wealth, that piece of paper is worth all of five to seven cents. But when it's guaranteed and spoken for, what is behind that bill is what gives you wealth. That's the events of this world. There are all sorts of things that are happening. But God is the one who is behind the scenes, who gives it purpose and meaning. He's the one who gives it worth. This is a lesson that we don't just need to teach to our children. We need to teach to ourselves that, that God is always there. That, that no matter what is out on the surface, he is working behind. Being humbled before God and confessing that he is ultimately in control then leads to our third way of proclaiming God's glory, and that is the way of worship. The way of worship. Humility, God, you are God and I am not. Confession, God, you are in control of all things. You're always working only leads to one place. God, you are worthy of my worship. That's how this passage closes out with the second half of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. One short phrase with this understanding that God is worthy of any glory that we would give him. Expressing God's glory is the ultimate demonstration of understanding God's glory. If you want to understand God's great power, we need to express God's great power. Now, I think there's a myth that we need to fight against when it comes to worship and giving God glory. 
Because all of this talk of humility and confession can lead us to be very self-deprecating. And our worship can become nothing more than, God, I'm going to make myself so small and insignificant and unworthy that I don't even have energy anymore to worship you. God, I am I'm not worthy. That's an appropriate phrase. And therefore, I cannot be worthy to worship. That is a, a false statement. The truth is we're not worthy of God's glory. Only God is worthy of glory. But God gives you worth through his son, Jesus Christ. So being self-deprecating is not worship. Sitting back and saying, I'm just a worm and God finds nothing useful in me is not worship. This paradox that we struggle with is that we are simultaneously sinful human beings who rebel against God and at the same time we're being perfected as children of God. Those truths are both, uh, both present in every decision, every action, every act of worship. God, I'm not worthy, but you have made me worthy. Think of Elizabeth Elliot, the, the wife of a missionary, Jim Elliot, uh, who, who wrote much of their, their missionary efforts you're unfamiliar with the story of Jim Elliot, he was flying and, and serving the uh, uh, Hurani people uh, of South America. And in one of his missions, uh, the native people found him and his missionary partners and killed them all. A very tragic event. Actually, it was a very uh, highly publicized event in the States in the early part of the 1900s. After the death of her husband, uh, you would think that Elizabeth Elliot would have shied away from the Hurani people, would have been bitter and upset, but instead she continued the mission that God had called her and her husband to, worked extensively with the people for years and years, seeing great fruit and revival among the native people. So much so that, that her story really is one of the greatest missionary successes in the history of the world. She went on to, to write in detail about that journey in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor. She wrote many other books and had many speaking engagements after her work in South America was done. And, and so she became a somewhat famous individual where people were showering her with compliments and, and praise. And if you read any of her works, she's deserving of every good thing you could say about her. Someone once asked her, how do you stay so humble? Knowing all that you've done, knowing all your work and all the, the fame and recognition you're now getting for the work that you've done for God, how do you stay humble? Isn't it counterproductive for you to allow people to give you all of this praise and compliments? And the way she explained it, I think, is a, a beautiful picture of, of humble and yet worthy worship. She said compliments were, were like flowers that people handed to her. It was as if they, they said, you're worthy of this flower, almost like a, a performance done well after theater or a concert. And, and she collects the flowers and said, at the end of the day, I put it together to form a beautiful bouquet, which I lay at the throne of God. That's the picture of worthy worship. God, you want to use me? You can use me. You, you want to work through me? You can work through me. If there's recognition that comes, I will humbly accept that and turn that glory and praise not to myself but to you this is what worthy worship is god everything that you do through me everything you use me for is not for my own glory any compliment that is given to me is a compliment given to my creator and my god you alone are worthy of glory so how do we live this out 
How do we give glory to God alone in practice? If, if this is what it is, understanding we are nothing, God is everything, confessing that he's in control of all things, we're in control of nothing, and worshiping him appropriately, saying, Lord, any, anything that comes my way, I'm deflecting back to you. Lord, you are worthy alone. How is it that we practice? I think the key is in verse 33, and that is that we reflect on who God is and what he has done. We reflect on who God is and what he has done. The best way to live out glory to God alone, the best way to act on it is to internalize it and remind ourselves about his great glory. And this is the verse we read in verse 33. Read this with me. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Look at the descriptive words in this verse. The depth of the riches, the wisdom and the knowledge. His ways are unsearchable. His judgments are inscrutable. Paul reflects on who God is. God is a God of infinite wisdom and knowledge. That's who you are, God. The depth of your understanding is something we cannot even begin to scratch the surface of. But it's not just who you are, God, but what you have done Your ways and your judgments, they're inscrutable, they're perfect. There's nothing about what you have done that would would lead me to give you less glory. You are worthy of all of it. Not just because of who you are, but because of how you act. God judges fairly without bias. God perfectly orchestrates the events of the earth. So as we, we think about giving God glory, it begins with us understanding who God is and what he has done. Begins with us saying, do I know the mind of the Lord? The answer is no. So am I seeking and searching after knowing the mind of the Lord? Do I rely on God's providence and judgment in this world? Do I know that he's going to judge fairly and so I trust when things don't go the way I think they should go that he's in control and he's worthy of that glory? Do we as individuals take time to step back and say, God, it's not about me, and I trust what you're doing. In practice, that means there's going to be times where you scratch your head and say, God, that's not how I would do it. God, that's not the way that I think is best. Or in 2020, God, that's not the way I voted. (laughs) You may look back and say, God, I don't understand what you're doing. But giving glory to you alone is understanding you know far better than I do. Lord, you are in control. You are worthy and only do good. As we wrap up, I want to remind you that that soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, can only be accomplished, can only be practiced by those who understand God's salvation in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. This morning, I hope that you would say, I want to trust God and God alone, but, but the first step in that is understanding how great God is in salvation. The first four messages in this series talk about Scripture, how it teaches us, how it it gives us the authority we need to follow. We talk about God's grace and faith. We talk about Christ and His salvation. All of those are building blocks. So this morning, I would ask you to search your own heart. God, if you say, God, I want to give you glory, let it start by giving Him glory and letting Him change your life, direct your life, save you from sins, give you forgiveness, and teach you how to know him more. Let's pray together.
Father, you alone are worthy of glory and honor and praise forever and forever. Father, we come in confession asking you to forgive us for times that we seek our own glory. But we ask that that when that glory is given to us, that we would collect it as Elizabeth Elliot did, as flowers formed to a bouquet and turn back to you. Father, let us be humble and also confident in the worth you give us in Christ. Lord, let us be faithful to trust you in any and every circumstance. And Lord, when we're discouraged, let us give you glory, even in the valley. Father, we pray that each one of us in here would know your glory through salvation, would know the the saving faith of putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would receive glory and honor through those decisions made this morning and that every decision we would make would be not for our own purposes, but for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.